This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation this week and for part of next. Thank you for joining me. We begin Fight Back as we do every Tuesday with our strategy panel, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Hello, panel. Hi, Jane. Hello. Hey, Jane. We'll start first with your thoughts on the federal election campaign. Just under four weeks to the big day, September 20th. All of the polls are indicating much the same. Justin Trudeau's liberals are holding around 32 or 33 percent voter support with the Aaron O'Toole conservatives in the high 20s or low 30s and the Jagmeet Singh New Democrats in the low 20s. In addition, both Jagmeet Singh and Aaron O'Toole as leaders Leaders are gaining in popularity among voters to the detriment of support for Justin Trudeau. Charles Souza, I will start with you. Is it fair to say that Justin Trudeau may not be getting it right? Well, nothing happened much in his favor in that first week. Um, but at the same time, I don't see a lot of people angry necessarily. They're disappointed is how I see it. You know, there's a malaise out there. It's the, it's the month of August. And I think for Justin Trudeau, he kind of wants this thing to be low-key as much as possible, given that he's on top by the polls. But I think people are just kind of fed up. There's not a lot of interest on their part. I don't know if the ballot question is really determined as of yet. I mean, his ballot question isn't necessarily what people want to hear, because they don't want to go to the, they don't want to go to the polls. Right. So I think he's just banking on the economy and full employment as it stands now. They don't want to deal with some of the other factors that are upon us, which is the new variant, the, the stage four, the increase in inflation. Um, but I, I get a sense from those that I speak to that it's not faring as well as he would like, because uh, people are kind of saying, I'm done with this. I don't know if I want to, I, I don't know who I want. That's the problem. And mm-hmm. I think that's what uh, Justin Trudeau is looking at as well. None of one else is faring necessarily as well, although they are increasing. Certainly Jagmeet is. But will it be enough? I don't think so. So I, I think the less said, the better at this point for, for, for Justin Trudeau. Karen, what do you see as the dynamic as we begin week two? Well, you know, I think that um, Aaron O'Toole has benefited from low expectations going into the campaign, and he's exceeding them. And so I think, you know, he is he's doing, um, you know, and John, you know, I'm going to steal your line, campaigns matter, they do matter. And he's getting a chance to introduce himself to Canadians, and he's not the scary beast that um, is often being portrayed as, by, you know, as a conservative leader. He's, you know, he's a. Everyone agrees that like Aaron O'Toole is a good guy, and he's he's running a, a good campaign. And so, you know, I I think like Charles, you know, I think everyone is just kind of watching and waiting. I think after Labor Day, things will really crystallize. And um, but it certainly, it has been. The fact that there isn't a defining ballot question has been working in favor of the opposition parties. It is only a five-week campaign. We're one week in, so there is a long way to go. John, what is your sense of what's happening right now? Yeah, my sense, Jane, is that, you know, with elections, there's two key things. And and, and as I I mentioned, as Karen alluded to, campaigns do matter. And the two things that I would say is never underestimate or take for granted the will of the electorate. You know, whether or not it's a provincial campaign, a municipal campaign, or a federal campaign, never think you have a read on what the electric is, think- the electric is, electric is thinking. Mm-hmm. One. Two, never underestimate your opponent. <clears throat> and I think Justin Trudeau has done both. I think he underestimated Aaron O'Toole's um, uh, potential for growth, because I think he saw over the last year that, that Aaron's been leader, that he wasn't getting traction, and the media weren't paying attention to him, his, no, his numbers were, were low. And of course, during the pandemic, as we've always talked about, when you're an opposition leader, you don't get that that attention. You don't get that necessary, the public eye that you would normally get in, in other things. So that's one thing I think that they underestimated was Aaron to his ability to be able to campaign as he did so well in the first week. And the second thing was, 
with respect to going to an election in the middle of a pandemic, I think that, that the Trudeau team didn't expect the, the public to uh, to really sort of pay attention. He thought a, sh- a summer short election might just kind of sneak through. But what we saw in Nova Scotia, I think, scared them. And that is, you know, liberal, the incumbent liberal premier there who ran in an election with 20 points ahead, who lost miserably uh, to the conservatives, I think put a lot of fear in, in, in the Justin Trudeau. So I think, Jane, it was a bad week for the liberals because when you are the incumbent and you're calling the election, you should have the ballot question or define why you want to go to an election, especially when you're causing the election. And I think he failed that in the first week. And that's a problem because it's hard now when you get to the second week or third week to try to define why you're going to election if it hasn't been done successfully in the first week. And that's a problem because even the media now, uh, quite frankly, ask him almost every press conference, why are we in this election? And that's a problem for him down the road. Right. And given what we've all been through over the last 18 months with this pandemic and a lot of Canadians have lost their jobs, had to switch jobs, work from home, you know, teach their children while they're working from home. A lot of sacrifices have been made. And I, I think you're right. I think you're all right that this this election feels like a power grab or it feels like an opportunistic move as opposed to something that needed to be done to seal the vision for the future. And I think Canadians are feeling uneasy about that. What do you think? You've heard what our strategy panelists are feeling about the first week of the election as we enter week two. 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866-740-4740. Panelists, I'm going to uh, take a call here from Pat in Toronto. Pat, go ahead. Well, I think we should stick with a minority government. I mean, it keeps them on their toes. We get good ideas coming out. I think if we give them a majority, I mean, it just doesn't work as well as far as good debate, good ideas, and proving things in the right way. So, uh, yeah, and I, I guess I have a little bit of a concern that the man, Mr. Trudeau, who I refer to as the man with the good hair, uh, has a little bit of a su- superiority complex in that his father was the pr- previous prime minister, or was a prime minister, way back when, when I was first voting. You know, I thank you, Pat. Thank you for that. Um, Charles, I, you know, and, and we bring up uh, Pierre Trudeau, our, our audience very familiar as Zoomers, having uh, lived under Pierre Trudeau. He was a brilliant man. I mean, whether you agreed with his politics or not, he was brilliant. He had a vision. I, I don't get that. And I think a lot of Canadian voters don't get that same feeling from Justin Trudeau. He, he, he talks a good game, but I don't know if he has that, the intellect of his father. Uh, Pierre Trudeau was a very dynamic individual, and uh, he certainly uh, made a lot of things happen and was transformative in the way things happen in Canada, including the Bill of Rights and, and the Charter. Um, so he, he was very forward-thinking and, in some respects, even ahead of his time uh, as we were into some transformations in our country, both uh, mentally, I think, and socially. And Justin Trudeau is living off of uh, that name, I think, to some extent. Um, And he does put, and he's working hard. I mean, the the prime minister is very determined. He's disciplined. He works hard. He's out there. So he's not hiding. And he's always taken a, he didn't, he's never taken the easy route to do what he's doing. He worked at it and he works hard. So to overcome some of the stigma that exists around being compared to his father. But Pat makes a point about, uh, the caller makes a point about minority governments versus a majority government. And the what doesn't happen, there's a lot of things that get stalled, and minority governments hold people who hold the leader to account in many respects, and that has happened here. But there are some things that need to be done, and, and sometimes the minority governments just stall the practice. Nothing gets through. We're seeing it in the United States with the different things in the House, and, and here it happened as well. It can be frustrating, but as long as it's in keeping with what we want to be done, and that's the issue, and I think that's what people need to understand is just, is Justin Trudeau trying to do something here or just to be something? I think the McLean's Magazine made reference to that kind of attitude, and that's what's going to be a tough thing for him to overcome. Well, since you are our strategy panelist here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz, if you were advising Justin Trudeau, Karen, how, what path would you encourage him to take the things he should say moving forward? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, like you've mentioned, his, his brand is not his father's brand. He's a, he's a different politician in a different time. 
And I, I think that his brand was really one of, um, you know, sunny days, sunny ways, um, a, you know, a, a better, brighter future, as it were. And that message is just difficult right now, to be honest, because we're not through the pandemic. We're facing down potentially another fourth wave. There is um, still ongoing questions about vaccine mandates and whether or not they're going to be required for daily living. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and the the sunny ways message isn't resonating with people because that's to your point, Jane, it hasn't been sunny for the last 18 months and it's not sunny now. Uh, you know, we've had a bit of a reprieve in the summer, but going into the school year, people are nervous for their kids. You know, seniors are nervous about now having to get a third shot. So there is a level of uncertainty that I think is uh, playing out that perhaps to John's point, the, pre- the prime minister didn't um, maybe get a full read on. And so he needs to figure out what his brand is going to be in this next election, because what's worked in the past isn't going to work now. And, you know, I think it also, to Charles's point, you know, if, if he were to win another minority government, I don't think it's going to be the same government. He actually, his minority government acted like a majority government. Uh, you know, the, the bold policy moves that they passed, and it, it was required because we were in a pandemic. But if a, a minority government is returned, I think the opposition is going to be much bolder in holding the government to account than than what we've seen in the past 18 months. John, what I haven't heard from Justin Trudeau, and I would think that he would to tout this as a positive, is the vaccination process. We did not have vaccines in this country. He and his procurement minister and their team, they got vaccines by the millions and millions. They have it stockpiled for boosters. Why do you think, from a strategy point, of view. He is not focusing on that. Well, I think, firstly, I, I just, to, just to reiterate, I think Justin Trudeau is a formidable um, uh, candidate, a politician, you know, notwithstanding the fact that I disagree with him a lot on, on policy uh, and likely wouldn't vote for him. But I think that he is he is somebody who is uh, a force to be reckoned with when it comes to campaigns. He has survived so much and, and over the last election and others. And, and to this day, he still has a lot of numbers. So you never underestimate Justin Trudeau, for sure, or his team. That said, I think the reason why he hasn't focused on that is because I think people need to be able to be forward-looking. It's, if he's going to call, if he calls the election as he did, it can't be about, well, I called the election because look at the good things that I did over the last two years, right? It's got to be because as he framed it, what's going to happen over the next you know, year, two years, three years, post-pandemic, which government do you want to handle that sort of area? And that was his sort of pitch. Uh, when he when he called the election or dropped the writ, and so it's hard sort of to say that and then say, but look look at the good things that I did. And I also think too that they know that they there was chink in the armor. There was some chink in the armor there with respect to what he did. You know, there was he was laid out out the gate getting the vaccines. To be honest, because the U.S. and other countries around the world were getting vaccines before we did. Uh, there was some delays when they were saying that they were promising a certain amount of, of vaccine. Um, uh, you know, volumes uh, into the various provinces. Well, you know, he was counting on that. Provinces were counting on that. And then there was delays with the various pharmaceutical companies for one reason or another. They stopped production. So there's a lot of things early on, without a doubt, that I think caused some problems. And I think that there are some issues there, some softness that I think he wants to be able to not focus on specifically. I think the opposition would pounce on it. But quite frankly, elections are about the future, not about the past. Mm-hmm. And I think he has to focus on the future. And that's his problem because he's, he doesn't have a plan necessarily other than the budget or, or re- reintroducing policies that he's reintroduced five years ago. Um, you know, or quite frankly, you know, being able to say exactly what he wants to do. And that's, that I think is going to show up in the next little while. He's got to have that plan moving forward in order for him to be successful in this election. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. You're on Zoomer Radio. Go ahead. Hello, everyone. Um, as to regard the, the critique that this is just a, a power grab by the Liberals, I think should bear in mind if the Conservatives' independent polling and the uh, NDP's independent polling told them that they could make great gains, you know, in the last over the last few months, that they can make great gains now by not supporting the government anymore, what do you think they would have done? Would they have sat there and said, well, you know, it's not a great time for an election, or would they have pulled their support? So I don't see how you can blame a minority government for when the polling shows it, trying to become a majority government. It's just it's the kind of nature of the beast of our politics. And will you be voting Liberal, Daryl? Yes. 
Okay. All right. Jane, can I, can I just jump in for a quick second? Yes, on please. That, to, to respond to Daryl's point. Um, and that is to say, you know, it's one thing for the polls to say that, but when you have the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, way before the writ was being dropped, saying that there's no need for this election, that he would continue to support the Liberals, that he wouldn't oppose them, as he did 99% of the, of the bills that were passed by the Liberals over the, over the course of the last majority, minority government were passed. And Jagmeet said that he would continue to do that. So there really wasn't uh, an excuse for, for them to go, because Jagmeet basically said he would support the government on bills in he the did. next year or so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, Karen, maybe that's uh, part of why the popularity for Jagmeet Singh is surging. He's he's now up in some polls to around 23 percent support. People, people like him. I mean, he's very down to earth. He comes across as very sincere and empathetic and real. Uh, and I would argue that Aaron O'Toole is is leaning in that direction. And Justin Trudeau could maybe take some lessons from Jagmeet. Um, what what do you see as uh, the the um, the positives in Jagmeet Singh's campaign. Well, he does. You're right. He has a very easy demeanor, and he's a good campaigner, and he's um, he's a safe alternative for liberals that might feel that this was not a necessary election. Uh, there's also, I think, the collapse of the Green Party uh, is, I think, the natural beneficiary is the NDP. And so, for all of the upset that's taking place over the Green Party, Jagmeet Singh's party is benefiting. So there's a couple things that are playing out, no question. And, uh, you know, we so you know, again, sorry, Charles, but like the collapse of the Liberal Party has meant that <laughs> there's, you know, uh, the official opposition is the NDP. Mm-hmm. And so that's taken a bit of, you know, because in Ontario, there was a bit of um, a, a tarnished reputation for the NDP, rightly or wrongly. But I think some of that um, tarnish has come off and, and they're seen as more of a viable, um, a viable th- third party. And, and again, he is... Um, you know, he's got a Twitter account. He's appealing to a younger, gener- a younger generation potentially. He's saying things that they people uh, want to hear. So uh, he, it, uh, it's not surprising to me that his popularity is rising. Charles, uh, what do you think? Will Jagmeet Singh be able to take some of, you know, specifically the Toronto ridings back from the Liberals? Uh, he, yeah, he can. And um, I mean, I know Jagmeet. I worked uh, opposite him in the in, in the Ontario legislature, yes. and um, he is sincere. He is. Uh, uh, eager to to do work, um, but I, th- there is something with the NDP, even with Jagmeet. I mean, right now he's seen with more, he's being more popular because he's more outgoing and he's out shaking hands and he's he cries, he's being sensitive, um, and he does come across as sincere. But um, I know these guys; they're all playing politics, mm-hmm. and this whole federal election is just a political move to play the polls, get what we can when we can. And as a caller mentioned, he uh, he's gaming the system, and he realizes that if the Delta continues, if there's going to be more problems in the future, the minority government will have a lot of problems, and he needs that majority to make it through. And uh, will Jagmeet eat away at some of that popularity? Absolutely. I mean, the, the NDP are, are it, it happened uh, during Middle East conflicts that happened, and a lot of people turned to the NDP that were angry that the the, the liberals and the conservatives weren't taking appropriate sides. And Jagmeet uh, has stick, stuck to his side, and he he um, he's not shy about things, but he's also not shy about admitting what he's wrong or hasn't or doesn't understand. Like he seems not to be the one. I'm in charge. I know everything. That's not his style, and that's actually very endearing. But but what about all these announcements? I mean, Charles, you say they're playing politics. It's an election. Should we believe the promises that are being made? I mean, today, Justin Trudeau offering a billion dollars in loans and grants to renters so they can become homeowners, O'Toole, and his plan to get workers on boards of directors for federally regulated businesses, saying this morning on long-term care. I mean, are these are these real and viable plans, or is it just election fodder that will be for Gotten. Well, I've had my own issues. Uh, I mean, Karen, you, you, I don't take offense to what, what that we, we felt. We deserve not to be there this last go-around provincially. We, we need to have a financial plan that's sustainable and that meets the needs of the people. Um, that worries me. A long-term view, the, these financial conditions and situations have to be beyond election cycles, and we got to be really more, more, more proactive. And I'm more sensitive to to the consequences of the decisions we make, and it's not a liberal thing. This is the conservatives in the province of Ontario are doing the same thing, 
And it, we need to be cautious about the fallout and the implications of some of the spending that's being done. I think his promises will be kept, and I think he's absolutely trying to garner the support of those more vulnerable and most in need. Um, but the best thing we can do for them and for the people and the programs that we're putting out there is to make them sustainable over time, and you can't keep spending your way out. I like that you're real in your reflection uh, about your political history, Charles. It's, you know, it's it's nice to hear a politician, yeah. former politician, acknowledge what was good, what was bad. I mean, we're all human beings. We all make mistakes. Uh, and I think that people like that. They like real. And I think the more real these leaders can get, I think, uh, you know, the, the race could still become very interesting. It's our strategy panel, Charles Souza, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco. And you want to get in on the conversation as well. Let's go to Lori in East York. Lori, go ahead. Yeah, I like Jug Meat's thing too, but I don't agree with his promise to uh, raise taxes on rich corporations. You know what's going to happen? They're all going to leave. Okay. You know, and people are going to be without jobs. John, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's the issue with the NDP have all the time, right? Their socialist platform, which is to say, you know, tax uh, folks, and, and when you say when they say tax the rich or tax corporations, um, they, they never define. Well, what do you define as rich or ultra rich or super rich? And at the end of the day, corporations create jobs and and they pay taxes. Now there are some you know closing loopholes to ensure that corporations, big corporations, don't get you know, don't sort of work their their, their loopholes to, to 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 get away from paying taxes, as you see in the states more so than here. But, you know, you've got, to, you've got to realize that if you tax the corporations to a point where it becomes less productive, then what happens is, you know, jobs get lost. They move to other countries to do things profitable. So it is a big problem. The NDP have always had that issue. Uh, and we saw that with Bob Ray when he became premier in Ontario uh, and almost bankrupted the province. You know, and, and never again will there be an NDP, you know, I don't say never again, but <laughs> rarely will there be will be NDP ever being focused in an Ontario government. And that's the problem at the federal level as well. Not with the fact that Jagmeet is a great candidate and somebody who I think is getting a lot of appeal. Uh, but that's a challenge for the party itself. Well, and to be fair to Bob Ray, John, I mean, he did create the Ray Days, which allowed people to still earn 80 percent of their income, take a day off every week and not lose their jobs. I mean, he he was innovative in a lot of ways. Well, he did. And of course, you know, who hated them the most were the bureaucrats, <laughs> the civil service. <laughs> right. Because they wanted that they wanted it all or nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to help them and they turned on him, I think. It's so, true. Anyways. But yeah. Karen, and and what are your what are your thoughts about uh, the promises that are being made by Jagmeet Singh? We have we have to even get to Aaron O'Toole. We haven't gotten there yet. We still have five minutes to go. <laughs> I was I was actually visiting with my ninety one year old father, and he he was listening to the campaign, and he said, "I don't understand why the NDP are still slogging that phrase. They're going to tax the rich. It hasn't worked for them yet. Why do they think it's going to work for them now?" Yeah. <laughs> so, and he's and he's witnessed a lot of history, right? And he's witnessed a lot of elections. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you know what, I think that, uh, you know, the promises are, are really statements about intent, you know, and everyone has, you know, good intentions, and I think, um, but, you know, some of those promises are, are very difficult to practically implement. So, but, you know, I, I think that what they're doing is that they're speaking to their audience by um, having messages that might resonate, and, and that's what campaigns are all about. Uh, and so, you know, on the Conservatives, again, I give Aaron a lot of credit because, you know, he did take some positions that weren't really risky in the court of public opinion, but for his own party, um, took a bit of time to have the party, you know, get behind him. But he has done that. And I think it's going to, and it's, it's clearly serving him well in this campaign. And Charles, we'll just, uh, we'll wrap up here with your final thoughts. Uh, Aaron O'Toole yesterday, his response to Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland's accusations that he is not in favor of universal health care. How, how did he, how well did he handle that? Well, uh, once you saw the entire clip, you come to appreciate that basically saying we already have a two-tier system to an extent in Canada, and he believes, uh, as he, well, he said what he said. Um, but I think for us, to, um, for us to start to claim otherwise is misinformation, and that bothers me, right? These ads, these things that should be more thought-provoking, um, they shouldn't be these dumb ads. And, and listen, the, the Conservatives did a, the Willy Wonka thing. It's just bizarre, right, that they come out with these crazy gimmicks. Um, I'm not in favor of that stuff at all. And what happens in the end, it makes O'Toole look better. Right. Final thought to you, John, as we wrap up the half hour. 
Well, I think that what we saw with Chrystia Freeland and that whole issue and the fact that Twitter, uh, you know, sort of labeled her, her tweet as manipulated media uh, gives it a special distinction of being classed in the same category as Donald Trump. Uh, but more importantly, though, Jane, and we could probably talk about this in another episode, which is to say these big you know, tech conglomerate media organizations like Twitter and Facebook and others have learned in the U.S. and are doing it in Canada now where they're not going to allow for misinformation and for, for campaigns at all party levels to, to do this kind of stuff. And the fact that they did it first uh, with Christian Freeland and the Liberals, I think hurt her personally and hurt the Liberals. And I think Aaron O'Toole is going to gain from it. I will look forward to speaking with you all again next Tuesday uh, with Libby on vacation and another week under our belts with the election campaign. It will be interesting to see what happens between now and then. Thank you all. Thanks, Jane. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Jane. Bye, Bye everyone. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, and Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. It was around this time yesterday that Libby joined us on the phone from Vancouver after taking a flight from Pearson Airport. On Sunday, she wanted to share the crowding that was going on at Pearson Airport, uh, a chaotic situation, she said, a harrowing environment of people too close together, masked but close together, and uh, a lot of uh, disorganization around trying to get people through the system and onto the planes. Well, as, as she was speaking, uh, Tori Gass at the Greater Toronto Airports Authority was listening along and sent us an email uh, responding to Libby's comments. So we wanted to, we wanted to air their rebuttal so that you could hear both sides of the story and hear what is being done at Pearson Airport. And she says, we understand your concerns and recognize that the return to travel has not been smooth for all passengers. She goes on to say, we're working closely with government agencies and our airline partners to help minimize the impacts to passengers and employees where possible. She also points out that with regard to physical distancing, the government of Canada now recognizes that in some areas of the airport, physical distancing of two meters may not be possible. In these cases, the government of Canada suggests a layered approach with multiple protective measures, including mask wearing, hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette, and ventilation systems. In accordance with published guidelines, she says Toronto Pearson's Healthy Air Airport program employs such a layered approach. So it seems the people at Pearson know what's going on. They know it is chaotic. They know the return to travel is not smooth. Uh, it is somewhat comforting that they are working on it. Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And uh, coming up next... It is the Wild West of COVID-19 proof of vaccination in Ontario. Why is there not a province-wide policy? We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host... Jane Brown. We are all Ontario residents, unless you're listening out of province or out of country on zoomerradio.ca or the Zoomer Radio app. So I want to hear from you. Should there be a province-wide policy on COVID-19 vaccinations to get into sporting events and entertainment venues, as well as for workplaces? It would certainly simplify the process, but is that the way that we should go? And would you like to see Premier Ford make that announcement? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740. 4740. At the moment, it seems everyone is coming up with their own policy of what they will require for entrance as well as in it at individual workplaces. We'll bring in John Karastamatis now. He is with Mervish to talk about what will be required to watch a stage production when theaters reopen. John, hi. Hello. First of all, I want to just get a short synopsis from you of what we will be able to see in Toronto theaters and when this feels like normal. It feels great. Uh, well, we do have a show on right now. It's a, it's an experimental show called blindness Yes, and it's only for 50 people. So that was our first toe in the water. The next, the next phase comes, comes in December. We've chosen December 
uh, because it's four and a half months away, and we feel that by the time we get there, uh, we will have settled into some form of uh, of normal by, by that point, whatever that may be. Uh, and by the time we get to December, theaters around the world will have opened everywhere but here so that we, we will be in a good position to know what has worked and what hasn't worked so that we don't make any mistakes because we don't want to open the theaters and then have to close them again. Mm-hmm. That's, that would defeat the purpose. We want to open them when we can open them safely and, 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 and comfortably and people have confidence in coming to them. Uh, and uh, so we, we have lots of shows. We, we, you know, Come From Away will be the first show that will reopen. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's perfect for these days, these times. First of all, it tells a story of, of a community uh, coming to groups with something awful uh, and working together, they do overcome it. And that feels what we're all attempting to do right now. It's, uh, it has a happy ending. It's, it has great music. It has lots of comedy uh, along with some of the more serious aspects. And it's only 90 minutes, no intermissions. So, uh, you know, I think people, it, 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 it will be cathartic is, is what I say. About and, it. and that will be in December. You're saying that? That will be in December. Right. That, that begins December the 7th. Around the same time, we're going to be doing a production of Jesus Christ Superstar that began in England, and we'll be touring North America. And it's a, it's a, a great, great production of a great classic music. And uh, so that, that will happen at the Princess of Wales Theatre. Uh, and then we we have a series of shows, uh, among them Tom Stoppard's brilliant new work, Leopoldstadt, which is his most personal play ever, and this will be the North American premiere, and it's very exciting. You know, yesterday in the in the New York media, they were saying, how come it's going to Toronto first and not coming to New York? Excellent. Don't we anymore? <laughs> uh, uh, so we like that. Uh, and then the, the season will, will, will close with two big hits. One is Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which will be in June 2022. And that's a massive production with over 30 people in the cast and a lot of magic on stage. And it will be locally produced with local actors. And we will also have the North American premiere of a brilliant musical that's been playing England now for some time called Anne Juliet. It's a reworking of the Romeo and Juliet story from the point of view of Juliet. And in it, I'm not going to spoil anything by telling you that Juliet survived at the beginning of the show. Uh, Romeo is dead, but Juliet's still alive. Oh, wow. Well, there's lots to look forward to, and I like that you've put out your season, even though it's starting in December now, so that we can look forward to the return to normal. A big part of enjoyment is the anticipation of of what's going to happen. Uh, I want to get to the policy now. So you've made it clear that double vaccinated individuals will be welcomed to the Mervish theaters. Uh, But for those who are not double vaccinated, they will not be allowed in there is there are only a couple of exemptions right tell us about the full policy yes so if you if you are not eligible to receive a vaccine for medical reasons or for a a deep-seated faith reason uh you can uh come in but you have to show a, a, a negative COVID test uh which has to be you know taken between 72 and 48 hours before uh, coming to the theater um, so that we know that everybody's on the same, in the same group. Everyone in the theater needs to be COVID free. Uh, uh, so nobody, nobody will be turned away as long as they have that 72 hour COVID test. Correct. Okay. So you, you could be philosophically against uh, vaccines or you could be an anti-vaxxer as long as you have that 72 hour negative test. Correct. Okay. So that is yeah. basically, that seems to be what is being applied to other venues, including the Blue Jays, the Toronto Argos, TFC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how did you come to the policy and would you have preferred guidance from the province or did you receive guidance from the province? 
We would have preferred uh, guidance from the, of the province, and the province does have guidance. What they don't have is a mandate. Uh, you know, a couple uh, midweek last week, they did issue a press release saying if, if, if businesses and organizations need a vaccine passport, uh, there, are, there are similar things that exist right now. Everyone who, who, who everyone in Ontario who who is vaccinated does receive an email mm-hmm. and receives a paper copy showing that. So that's one form. The province also said that the federal government is midway into creating a travel vaccination passport, which can be used as a vaccination passport in Canada too, and that should be ready by the end of September. And the federal government is working on that with each of the provinces. Uh, and uh, all of us will, all of us who have been vaccinated, uh, can request one, um, and uh, it will it will come to us digitally or in paper or both. Um, so again, uh, because this is there isn't anything yet that's really concrete. That's why we ch- we chose to open in December and mm-hmm. not sooner. Well, um, there there are some provinces. Yesterday, British Columbia, uh, Quebec as well, where they are going to get vaccine passports or vaccine certificates, which can be used within the province. Based on what you're saying, uh, if we do get these federal vaccine passports sooner rather than later, perhaps there's no need for an Ontario vaccine certificate on top of that. You know, personally, I think it should, the federal government should be responsible for the, for the vaccine passports, like they are responsible for regular passports. Mm And and each and each of the provinces needs to work with the federal government. In other in other words, give them access to their data, uh, so that they they have all the correct information. But you know, we are a country, right? It doesn't make sense for one province to have a vaccine passport and another one not to have it, since the borders between the provinces are, are don't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know. Uh, uh, I think it. I, I really do think it should be a federal uh, a project uh, with provincial uh, involvement because well, each prov- each each Ministry of Health in each province has that medical information that's needed. And yet, you know, we have this Wild West kind of scenario happening where we do have other provinces doing their own thing rather than waiting for. Uh, the federal vaccine passport. Um, I'm wondering, and I want to put this out to our Zoomer radio listeners, is, is that good enough? The, the federal vaccine passport, if they can get that to us uh, in September, do we need another Ontario certificate on top of that? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. John Karastamatis of Mervish is here with me, Jane for Libby on Zoomer radio. Let's go to Evie in Toronto. Evie, what are your thoughts? Um, okay, I'm not sure what the... If you have a passport, doesn't that mean that you've been... Had your vaccine? If you're... Yes, if you when they issue the federal passports, these vaccine passports, uh, they will show proof in some sort of digital code that you... Right. right. So what is... Then I don't understand the problem. I mean, either... You have your passport or you uh, do what the gentleman was saying. What what would even be the problem? I I guess there's the the problem, and thank you for your call. I guess the problem, John, is that Premier Ford... has not been definitive about what we're going to use in Ontario. He keeps talking about the receipt. Well, we haven't seen him lately, but he has talked about the receipt that we get from the Ministry of Health in the email, but he hasn't come right out and said, we are going to use the federal passports in the province as proof of vaccination. No, no. They, the, the closest they, they they got was this press release uh, last Wednesday, uh, where they you know they, they addressed you know what you know what about a passport you know essentially sort of saying we don't have to make one because one kind of exists even though it's a cumbersome one because all it is is an email or a piece of paper, uh, and I would want something more legitimate, something with a barcode mm-hmm. that you know can be scanned easily at the, at the entrance to a Blue Jays game or a Maple Leafs game. Uh, 
the way a ticket is scanned to let you in. Uh, you know, so he, yeah, they're, they don't seem to be going down that road. And, uh, you know, if the federal government will make one, there's no point in duplicating everything. Mm-hmm. It just uh, it just needs to be clarified. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get more reaction on the idea of a vaccine passport mandating COVID vaccinations for workplaces and entertainment venues when we speak with Dr. Uni, the scientific director of the advisory table in a moment. Uh, but I thank you very much for your time, John. It was nice to chat with you. Thank you. John Karastamatis is Director of Sales and Marketing at Mervish Productions, getting ready to launch the 21-22 theater season in December. So coming up next, Dr. Uni, he will talk about the idea of a province-wide policy on COVID vaccination proof um, and also what is really going on behind the scenes with the COVID-19 Ontario Science Advisory Table. We will ask him about that next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Dr. Peter Uni joins us now. He is the Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Advisory Table, Science Advisory Table, and a frequent guest here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Dr. Uni, welcome back. Thanks a lot. For our listeners, if you've been listening to the news, then you've heard about Dr. David Fisman's resignation from the science table. In short, he says the table is sitting on grim modeling numbers and not releasing them to the public because of political pressure from the Ford PCs. Dr. Uni, you would know more than anyone whether this is true, is it? No, it's not. I feel very sorry, you know, that Dr. Fisman resigned. He's a brilliant scientist. But uh, we need to be aware of that. What happened basically is that our modeling table, as everyone else uh, at the table, is just completely exhausted. They had a summer break and there wasn't any ensemble modeling that was was uh, available that we could have presented. There was just a summer break. What you need to be aware of is all of these models are not just simply based on a single model what is being presented, but it's multiple models by multiple groups, and this gives the entire thing robustness. You can imagine you don't do that overnight. And what actually happens right now is that my colleagues from the modeling table are preparing that to be presented relatively soon. Don't ask me when exactly, when exactly, but it will happen relatively soon now. So, so the dynamic, as you're telling us, is that uh, the members of the science advisory table who are volunteers, yes? Yes, they are, yeah. Amazing. They've had a summer break, effectively. Um, And so that's why you haven't released a number since June 10th? So first of all, you know, there were a lot of numbers that were released. We're still updating our dashboard daily. And basically, when you look at that, you can look at it right now. It just has been updated. If you you Google uh, science advisory table dashboard, you'll find it immediately. As of today, an average of 661 cases daily and a doubling time of 20 days. What does this mean? In an average of 20 days from now, 661 will have doubled per day and we're then roughly at 1,300 cases. So you don't even need a model, you know, and I went out for weeks now already saying, guys, we're in the fourth wave, we're in exponential growth. Doesn't look that exciting. We now need to make it to the next step, which is school opening. And there's no way we could leave step three. Same message right now. So is it, would it be fair to say that the premier has not received guidance from the science advisory table since June 10th? Or, you know, what's been going on this summer? No, no, look. Uh, To be honest, I nearly cancelled my holidays. I didn't have many days off there because we were also preparing material in the background, such as, you know, comparisons with other jurisdictions in the world, uh, you know, Netherlands, Singapore, Germany, etc., and and we had a lot of discussions, you know, with a lot of people. And you can imagine, you know, the decisions made that we would not exit step three probably was not entirely unrelated to all the discussions we had. There's a lot in the background. But as a matter of fact, 
the modeling consensus table that was working, you know, 18 months in a row, volunteer work, yes. they needed a break and so did we. And well, <laughs> I didn't have much of a break. Some other people luckily had because many people are really at the brink of exhaustion. So are you all, and I appreciate that, I, I can't, you know, it's hard to imagine for those of us who work five days a week, how you all, and I mean you all, right across the board, when I think about John Tory as well, uh, the public leadership of any number of politicians, the scientists, the epidemiologists uh, that we see everywhere and hear here on Fight Back, you have all been working seven days a week for a year and a half. Uh, now, are is your information relayed directly to Dr. Kieran Moore, our chief medical officer, or is he getting information from another group of people as well? Um, we, we are in frequent contact, Dr. Moore and I personally, uh, Dr. Brown is, many of us are. There's a lot of exchange going on, you know, also with the, with the medical officers of health in the different uh, public health units of the province. There's a lot happening in the background. And I really think we have a common understanding here. This is basically where we are right now is never been but the province being that open as right now, you know, we have a lot of mobility, a lot of contacts. Um, case numbers are going up in the presence of a highly transmissible variant that has changed the game. But we also need to be aware of that since we have had so many people vaccinated. The same case numbers will not mean the same numbers of beds occupied in the ICU. That's the good news. So we need to really carefully look at ICU numbers. And of course, we now need to get ready for schools, meaning cases come be too high because we don't want to introduce cases into schools and we need to make sure that everybody who can get vaccinated really gets vaccinated also to protect our students. You remember back in the earlier days uh, when the vaccine was just being released, there was a lot of talk about the race between the vaccines and the virus. Can the, can the vaccine still win the race even in the face of the Delta variant? No, not completely but we can really mitigate the problem. Right now, we have 800,000 people of, of the age of 50 or more who are still not completely vaccinated, many of those completely unvaccinated. These people have, during the next 6 to 12 months, uh, uh, 1% risk, 1 in 100 or even higher, depending on their age, to end up on an ICU because of COVID-19. This is a tragedy for these people, but yes. it's also a real challenge for our healthcare system. So if we get all those people actually, you know, just convinced to now get vaccinated to protect themselves and the healthcare system and others, this will already make a big, big difference. Can we completely win it with vaccines? Not with this vaccine, but we can protect the population and the healthcare system from a lot of people, again, ending up in our ICUs and from a lot of people dying. Is there still such a thing with the Delta variant as herd immunity? Now we're at 75% double vaccinated in the province. Uh, is, there, can, is there a number we need to get to to, to reach herd immunity with this virus? We can, no, we can only, that's really important just to realize that, we can only reach herd immunity by a combination of vaccines and those who don't want to get vaccinated getting infected. That's the bit the truth here. There is no way that those who are not vaccinated will not eventually get infected. And the problem then is that they will actually just be challenged with complications potentially. It's a gamble, of course, you know. There are people who remain asymptomatic, but a lot of people will develop long COVID and some people will actually also end up on the ICU. With Alpha, there was herd immunity in, in, in sight and you saw that, you know, we opened up more and more and numbers plummeted. Delta kicks in. Now it won't work that well anymore because Delta is simply too transmissible and it also partially evades the vaccines. But this doesn't mean we're not protected against ICU admission. We are. The protection against ICU admission, go to our dashboard, daily updated, it shows you right now, to, as of today, is 97% in our province. That's real-life data from today. So the, the evidence is overwhelming, and people now need to let go of theoretical concerns and conspiracy theories and get vaccinated. Well, that is comforting. Uh, Dr. Peter Uni is with us. He's the Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Advisory Table. Just a couple of minutes left and, and a couple of important questions I have for you. Uh, one is for parents and grandparents 
of young children, the 11s and under. How concerned uh, do they need to be with the return to in-person learning? I think they should be reassured here. Our youngest are seven and nine. We sent them back to public school here in Toronto, period. We need to be aware of that, that compared with many other places in the world, we have many more precautions. And um, while this will be a bumpy road, we are on the right track here. We need to carefully monitor what goes on in schools and that that will happen. Um, and uh, we need just to adapt the, the back to school plan a little bit. You know, for instance, no singing indoors, no wind instruments indoors, no congregations outside of the class setting indoors. That's important that this changes still because of the Delta wave that we're in. But in general, Please don't panic. We now need to make this through the next few months until we can start to vaccinate our smallest, which will be great news. But what we have in place, when I compare that with my home country, Switzerland, this is, I mean, that's 20 times better than what happens in Switzerland right now. Dr. Uni, will the vaccine for children, uh, first of all, be made by the same manufacturers? And will it be a different dose or a different configuration? It's absolutely by the same manufacturers. It will be a different dose. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons that it takes a while. You know, we need to get the dose right and we need to make sure that the dose is equally effective and safe. And we also need to get the interval right. So that takes a moment. And I would hope still, you know, that uh, approval would happen in this country in November or so. Again, that may be just my hope so that we can start to vaccinate in December. And it will be different doses, also meaning that we use up actually relatively little of the vaccine uh, for our children and can keep them safe. And a final question to you with a minute and a half left here. Uh, We were talking earlier in the show about some sort of province-wide policy on COVID vaccination, proof of COVID vaccination for uh, venues, entertainment venues, sports venues, uh, back to work. Can we expect something like that from Premier Ford? Look, I, I, I don't know uh, directly, you know, I don't have any news directly from my, from my Premier Ford, but I'm, you know, li- listening to what I hear and, you know, all the discussions we're having, I really think that many, many people are aware of, no, we can't stay where we are when we when schools open and then we go back, you know, indoors more because of the weather changing. We need something in addition And uh, this could well be a vaccine certificate. I'm still relatively optimistic that this will change and that we move into the right direction. Why? It's actually inevitable. Either we restrict, you know, indoor spaces at high risk for everybody, or we distinguish between those who are not at risk, that's the vaccinated people, and those who are at risk, that's the unvaccinated. The conversation pauses for now. Dr. Uni, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Dr. Peter Uni is the Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Advisory Table. It is a volunteer position. I'm Jane for Libby. Back tomorrow on the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane, and then again at Fight Back after the noon news. Have a great day. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.